Hercules said it, and the Klump family proved it. Right? His name would go down, remembered for what he had done. Uh, you watch a movie like that, and you think to yourself, certainly a guy like Hercules can do the kind of things that Hercules can do. But in reality, if you sort of look over the, the landscape of just even the people within that movie, what was it about him that allowed him to be the person who people remember for all time? Uh, was it that he was bigger, faster, stronger than everybody else? Was it his skill, or was it simply the fact that he was the only guy in the army willing to walk out there and face him down? I mean, of course, there's a similar story told in the Bible. Uh, every t- you can't watch that movie and not be thinking of a biblical story, right? You're, of course, thinking of David and Goliath. Uh, David was no Hercules, at least not when he was... It's almost like in that picture right there, David would have been who? Hercules or the little boy? He would have been the little boy. But who does he become? Because of what God does to him, because he's willing to step out in faith and show up and fight the battle, he becomes the Hercules of the people. And later, he all, and later, later people will sing songs about him and say, you know, others have slayed a thousand, but he has slayed ten thousand. Uh, he would become a Hercules in his day and become the preeminent leader and warrior in all of Israel. <clears throat> and so you might look at somebody like David and you go, how does somebody become like that? Uh, you know, whether it be in biblical times or in our own times. And sometimes maybe you look at people who are being used to do amazing things by, through God, and if you're really honest, I wouldn't say you're jealous of it, but you do at times go, why her, God? Why him? Like, I feel like as if I have every bit of skill, wisdom, knowledge, talent that they do, but yet you seem like you're blessing them and doing amazing things through them and not me. Why is that? And these are the kind of questions that come up. You know, what is it that separates somebody out to be a great leader for God? What is it? What are the characteristics or qualities about it? And amongst those who are great leaders, what distinguishes somebody as the best of the best or the, the greatest among? Like, for instance, if you, if you ever go and watch a tryout, you don't have to have a trained eye to be able to figure out who can sing and who can't sing, right? American Idol told us all that. Like, and is, that judge, is there anything more useless than that judging panel? at the very beginning of the show especially. I mean, everybody knows William Hung can't sing, right? Everybody knows it. It's funny, but everybody knows he can't sing. Uh, I don't need April and Alex to come in and let me audition for the worship team to tell me that I can't sing. Everybody, every one of you would know that. You don't have to be a trained ear or have perfect pitch to know I can't sing. Uh, at the same time, not only can you tell competent from incompetent, it's also pretty easy to tell good from bad or good from average. You go to anybody, you, you just find somebody in the church whose kids play a sport, show up at a game, and within the first inning, within the first period, within the first 10 minutes, instantly you can tell who the good kids are and who the bad kids are, right? And then amongst the good kids, you probably can also tell who the starter or who, who the superstar is, right? You just, you can't. It's really easy to tell good from average, great from okay, and it's even amongst those who are really good to tell who's the best of the okays. But what about when you have a group of the best of the best? I mean, these are the things that radio talk shows and TV shows argue about all the time, right? Who's the greatest? Who's the best? Uh, who would be on your route, Mount Rushmore of baseball? Or who'd be your all-time starting five in basketball? We, we talk about who would be the best, and the debate goes on and on and on and on. You look through the scriptures and you see similar kind of issues or similar kinds of things. Like, Jesus has like 70 or following who he sends out to tell people uh, about, about his ministry. Amongst those, there's, there's 12 that are his disciples. And then amongst the 12, there's, there's the three. There's the Peter, James, and John. And then amongst even those three, there's Peter who he calls on to be the leader of all of them. And you kind of look at it and you say, you know, why those 12? 
why those three of those 12? Why, why Peter of all of all the people? I mean, you ever had that question, like, why did he choose Peter? I mean, Matthew seemed like he was a much better writer, right? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, John seems to be like the, the primary choice. After all, he said, John, take care of my mama. So John's good enough to take care of your mama, but Jesus, you want to lead the whole ministry? He seems like he messes up over and over and over again. He seems like the, the one guy you wouldn't want running this thing. I mean, he's like the Tommy boy of, of the New Testament, when you read, if, if you know the reference, of the New Testament. I mean, he's, he's so close to making the sale, but he always messes it up in the end, right? Like, why him? You know, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that David, this guy who started off as a little boy who nobody thought much of, and not even his dad, not even, not even his own dad thought he could, you know, measure up to greatness, uh, he ends up becoming the leader of all leaders. And amongst him, he has what are talked about in the Old Testament as his 30 mighty men. And of those 30 mighty men, each one of these dudes are just bad dudes. I mean, the stuff that they did are legendary. I mean, these are the guys who have like the Congressional Medals of Honors and Purple Hearts of their day because everybody looks at them and goes, whoa. I mean, and the Bible tells a lot of the stories. But amongst those 30, there were three that even stood out amongst that. And if you go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, we're going to be this morning, I sort of picture this story coming out of somebody coming to David and saying, all right, those 30 dudes are the baddest dudes ever. I mean, just the stuff that they did was amazing. But amongst those 30, there were three that sort of stood out amongst those. What was it about those three? How did you pick those three amongst all of the 30? Because every single one of them is amazing. How did those guys sort of become like the Mount Rushmore uh, statues of all of your guys? How did they become your starting five? How did they, how, how did they become the, the, the true goats of all of your mighty warriors in the land? What was it about them? And so... Uh, it seems like as if he's probably telling this story about how this all came about in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, which the reason why I want to focus in on it is because if you ever had that question asked, how is it that God could do something amazing through me? What is it that distinguishes somebody who God uses in a mighty way to lead a spiritual movement to accomplish his purposes? How do you become that kind of a person? I, I think David's explaining that because that's the question that's being asked to him. What was it about these three that separated them from even the best of the best of the best? The most amazing guys who there's all kinds of stories. Like there's one guy who, you know, on a snowy day jumps in this pit and fights a lion with his bare hands. I mean, like who does that kind of thing? There's this other guy who like takes on a whole army of people uh, just to defend his own property. I mean, it's just amazing kind of stuff, right? So he talks about these three. And he goes back and he tells this story of something that happened right before a major battle. Now, what's going on kind of in this time is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, God came to Abraham and he said, uh, someday I'm going to establish in you a people, a unique nation that other people and other nations will be able to look at, see there's something unique and different about you guys. And what's going to be unique and different about you guys is your relationship with me. And because you will be a salt and light to the whole earth, people will want to have a relationship with me because of your relationship with me. And all nations will end up being blessed because of that. And, and here, the epicenter of the world at the time, you had um, Asia and Europe and Africa in the center of all of that, to, the key to controlling the whole world. The reason why that land was so fought of, over all those years ago is because it was a central place of all of that. Real estate is everything, right? Location, location, location. This is the land I'm going to give you, the whole area, so nobody can travel anywhere through there without coming through and seeing the people who are a perfect example of a relationship with me. This is where I'm going to give you. But I can't do it right now because the people in the land do not deserve to be judged yet, so it's not going to happen for a couple hundred years. And then you guys are going to come in and take it. And sure enough, Moses leads people out of Egypt, and Joshua goes in and leads the conquest, and they take the major fortified cities. The people never end up fighting all the rest of the battles to take the land that God had promised them, until David. David is the king who finally expands the borders of Israel to the full extent to which God had promised them. 
But just because God had promised it doesn't mean it's going to be easy along the way. Let me just say that again. Just because it's something that God has promised to do doesn't mean the path to get there is going to be easy. And along the way, David is just outside of Bethlehem on his way to, to come through, to be, you know, continue taking the land. And he's up against a very powerful opponent, which is the Philistine nation. And you'll see the Philistines keep coming up because both of them are, are fighting over trade routes and high places and strategic points and resources. And it's a continual issue. And so they're the, the major obstacle standing between him and them. And what's it say about David when there's people who can't be removed from said land? Uh, what does it say about him as a king and as a leader when he's got to this point where he's sort of stuck? He's held out in a stronghold and he can't seem to make any progress with this. And it's a time where he's sort of discouraged and frustrated, wondering, can this still happen? And so David goes and he's explaining how did these three guys emerge among the 30 and he goes back to this time where he was struggling with thoughts of despair and questioning whether or not God could do this or not and having all those issues. And it says this in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 11. It says, three of the 30 chiefs came down to David and he was at the rock of the cave of Adullam where the Philistine band had been encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in a stronghold and the Philistine garrison was between him and Bethlehem. And David longed for the water, and he said, Oh, that somebody would just get me a drink from the water of the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So those three that had come down amongst the 30 broke through the Philistine lines on their own, drew some water from the well of the gate near Bethlehem, and they carried it back to David. When they gave it to him, though, he refused to drink it, and he poured it out before the Lord and said, Oh, God forbid that I should do this. He said, Should I just drink the blood of the men who risked their lives? Because they'd risked their lives to bring it back. David would not drink it. And such were the exploits of these three mighty warriors. So that kind of summary statement there is sort of like I, where I picture the author having gone in and says, what was it about these three? And he tells this story. And this is a story that sort of stood out to him. And I think the first thing you need to, to know, the first key to this when you're wondering, what is it about somebody that God uses versus somebody God doesn't? What is it about some, you know, the, these three who stood them apart from the other 30? How did David select these guys? I picture the question that's not written in here that's being asked to David. What was it about those three guys that made you choose them over all the others? I don't know if you picked up on it here, but I think his answer back was, I didn't choose them. They chose themselves. David didn't go to three guys and say, hey guys, um, let me see, let me see. I want you, and I want you, and I want you. You guys, come, come on down here, come on here. Here's what I'm struggling with. No, it just says three of the 30 came down to David. They self-selected and they came. Now, point number one, if you want to be somebody who got used by God in a mighty way, the first requirement is just show up. Just show up. I mean, over and over you heard this you know, story where, you know, who is, who, is, who is more likely to be used? The person who's most talented, most gifted, and most skilled, but isn't there, or the one who is. And I told my son this when he, when he started playing football. I said, Here's, here was my trick. I wasn't a starter when I first started playing. But I overheard the coach tell the guy who was a starter, because they would rotate in, like wide receivers would go in and out and carry the play. And the coach would be so focused on the game, he would always go like this, and go, all right, all right, and tell the play, and he'd send him in. So, now there's a lot of places you can stand on the sideline. You can hang out by the water cooler, you can get a good view, you can go hang out with your friends. Mm -mm. Coach is there, I was always right here. And if the guy who was the starter was supposed to be there, wasn't where he was supposed to, and that coach went like this, I was going, no lie, did it all the time. And he would be like, he'd sit in the play, and sometimes he would try to like grab the back of my jersey to yank me back because he realized when he saw my number it was the wrong guy. Because in a helmet, you kind of disguise you know, who you are. And he'd go, oh, 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 and I'd just take off running in there. I got more playing time 
not because I earned it at practice or not because I had the skill. I just knew where to be. <laughs> right? Works, right? Step number one is just simply show up. And so first, I'll say to both of you here in, you know, online as well as in the room, just showing up. A lot of people right now are struggling whether or not they're even going to show back up at church ever. And it's, it's been a big struggle, whether it's online or in person. The question is, am I going to show up? Well, it's going to be hard for you to pray that God does something amazing through you if you never, ever show up, because showing up is, is, is half the battle um, in life. And for some of you, just being here is a battle. And not just in a year like we've had this past year, but it's just a battle. And you might feel like as if the whole world is conspiring against you to keep you from here. Newsflash. The spiritual word certainly is. Satan does not want you to show up week after week. Why do you think it is that your kids are the most difficult to get ready on a Sunday than they are any other day of the week? I don't know if this has ever happened. You ever had a fight so bad with your spouse that you don't even want to talk about going to church the next day? Because you'd almost feel like a hypocrite if you did. Or like she's going to be like looking at you the whole time. Mm, you listening? You listening? You listening? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you just act like they were all good now, but you know how things were last night. Mm-hmm. What if I told everybody about last night? Mm-hmm. And you don't even want to deal with that, so it's just easier not to go. On top of that, work is piling up, and if you just you know, stayed home for just this one you know, couple hours, you could really catch up on things, or you know, the, the yard needs to be mowed. Don't even get me started about the laundry. Right now as I'm talking, some of you are having anxiety right now of all the stuff that you're, you should be doing, but you're not because you're here. So you're thinking, why did I come here anyway? Because the pastor's telling me all the stuff I should be doing anyway. For many of you, it's a battle just to be here. I get that. But just showing up is something that a lot of people don't do. Now, what was odd when we were at the luau, people think like I see everybody in the room, okay? They think I track everybody's attendance mentally. I'm going to let you in a little secret. If you're behind Chris over here, I can't see you or who you are. Uh, about behind Harry Tully and back, my eyesight's too blurry and the light lighting is so dim and so on around the room. On top of that, if you've ever been pulled over at night and the police officer walks up with a flashlight, what I've heard is that it's really hard to see in that moment. <laughs> I won't share whether or not I have per- first-hand experience, but that's what it's like having these bright lights in my face right now. I can't see who's here, that's what I'm trying to say. But I walk around a luau, and it's almost like as if when I would go say hi to somebody, instantly they'd be like, oh, okay, here's where I've been, here's what's been going on like I know or something, or like I'm over there to interrogate them for like, where you been? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. But what I hear from people saying is, it's a real battle just to show up. And it is. I understand that. Um, it's a battle sometimes to show up. But when you don't show up, you never know what you're going to be missing out on. We have a saying we say at a lot of our events, if you missed it, you missed out. I think the very first example of that we find in Scripture shortly after Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the tomb is empty, and the disciples, they haven't seen Jesus since he died on the cross. They don't know where he's at, what happened. They firmly have enough faith or belief that, you know, he's probably risen from the dead, but they don't know that they know that they know. And they're sitting there all gathered together one Sunday, probably a week after it happened, and all of a sudden, sure enough, Jesus walks in the room, and he sits down with them, and he talks with them, and he eats with them, and they're just amazed at the whole thing. However, on that day, guess who didn't show up? Thomas. Thomas didn't show up. And so he doesn't get a firsthand experience of what God is doing and the fact that he actually has, he doesn't have the kind of firsthand story that everybody else has. He doesn't have the testimony everybody else has. Rather, he's got to live off the story of everybody else. Why? One reason, one reason only. He didn't show up. Now, I got a lot of questions I want to ask various people from the Bible someday. You ever had that? Like, you know, you want to ask somebody like, Why'd you do that? How'd you do that? What were you thinking at that moment, right? 
what, how, how good did Bathsheba look that you threw almost everything away for that? I mean, sorry, just questions, questions you got to ask, you know? How did the guy with the donkey know Jesus needed it? I don't know, I don't know. Maybe it's a simple answer, maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, what was the conversation between Jesus and his brother James like when James had denied his deity his whole life, and then all of a sudden James becomes a pastor, and it says that Jesus and James met? Did Jesus say, how you like me now? Like, what did he say? I don't know. I want to know. I, I want to know how that went down. One of the things I also want to know, one of the things I also want to know is, Thomas, what were you doing that day when you weren't there? All the disciples in the room, what was you doing? Was you out for a meatball sub? What did you do? What did, I mean, did you go get a falafel? What were you out doing that you missed out on this moment? I don't know. I don't know what he was doing. All we know is he wasn't there. Because he didn't show up, he missed out. And he was forever known as what? Doubting Thomas. You could just as easily call him No-Show Thomas, right? That's it. One event just didn't show up. That's, that was his only crime. He didn't show up. And you can't blame him. Everybody else got to see and feel it. Why is everybody calling him out? They all were you know, struggling to believe it too. When the women came back and said that the tomb was empty, he's from the dead, they looked at it like they were nuts. Everybody was doubting this whole thing. He just gets labeled. Why? Simply because he didn't show up. So key number one is just simply showing up. So it says these three, thir- uh, three of the 30 came down to David, who was here at the rock, uh, in the cave, in the stronghold. Since at that time David was in the stronghold, the Philistine garrisons were at Bethlehem. Since David longed for the water of Bethlehem, and he says, oh, that somebody could just get me a drink from the water of the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, What's kind of the background here? Well, Bethlehem was David's hometown. That's where David was born. And some of you right now are like, hey, that's so cool. I know somebody else in the Bible who was born in Bethlehem. Jesus, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's pretty cool. Isn't that a kind of a coincidence? Okay, let me look back in a little bit of backstory on the Christmas story. Do you know why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Because his parents were from the house in the line of David. That was their hometown. They're all part of the same family. And Caesar said, everybody needs to go back to your hometown. Happens to be the same hometown that David had because they're relatives. And so that's why they end up there. That's why Mary ends up having the baby there. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So in this moment, David is longing to be able to go back to his hometown, but he can't. Now, any of you all have a restaurant or a meal back in your hometown that to you in your mind will always be the best of anything, right? There's barbecue places here, but nothing like the one back home. There's pizza places here, but nothing like the one back home. You with me on this? It's just, it's just there. Like for me, I'm really excited. This summer, I'm going to get to go on a barbecue tour of the Southeast. I love pork barbecue. Uh, I, d- I do not like the local variety where they put all the vinegar in it that I'm allergic to. They'll about, about kill me. Uh, but I'll be going through Birmingham, and I'll be going by Johnny Ray's, and I'm not only going to get my Johnny Ray's, I'm also going to get a pint so I can bring it back and have Johnny Ray's here. Hey, the stuff y'all cooked he- here was amazing, uh, but it's not Johnny Ray's. And then when I leave there, I'm going to go down to Florida. I'm going to hit Sonny's. I know it's sort of like the fast food of, uh, uh, of barbecue, but hey, if you've been to Sonny's, it's Sonny's. And when your people go there, it's sliced pork, not pulled pork. It's the only place I'll do sliced pork, but it's amazing sliced pork, except for Dale's. Dale's is also good. I'll be there in Fort Pierce. <laughs> they have sliced pork too, and that's phenomenal as well. And then on top of that, I'll also be down to Park Avenue Barbecue in West Palm Beach, where I grew up, which was like the only barbecue joint in town. It was amazing. A little hole-in-the-wall place. Phenomenal. Now they're a big franchise all over the place down there. Amazing. Do you know what I long for the barbecue the most? When I have those points where I'm down, I'm depressed, and I miss home. You with me on this? Maybe for some of you it's just mom's cooking. When do you miss mama's cooking the most? And don't say after my wife cooks. Don't you dare say that. <laughs> no, you miss it when, when you can't be home and you wish you were home. And circumstance, commitments, life, whatever it may be, stands between distance, whatever it may be, stands between you and being there. 
So if you read between the lines here, when David is, is longing for water from the well of Bethlehem, I, I don't think it tasted all that difference, right? It was just that he was in a place where he wasn't in a good place. And he realizes the battle that's in front of him and the task that's before him that's preventing him from being able to even go home right now. And he has this sense where he's like, God, I know you promised this, but I look at the battle before me. These are the Philistines, yeah. I took out one of them when I was a kid, and he was huge. He was like that guy in the video. That, these were the Philistines. Goliath was a Philistine, and he wasn't the only big dude. And Israel always had a height complex because when they first went to the land, they realized the people there were far bigger than they were, and they were always intimidated by their enemies. Their enemies always had better weapons, always had better everything. And so you have this moment where he's actually scared about this battle coming up and wondering, is this ever going to happen? These moments of despair. It's like, oh, I just wish this whole thing was over and I could just go back home. But I can't. And so these guys hear about this. And it says, verse 18, so the three broke through the lines of the Philistines. Just these three dudes. They went down, they broke through the lines of the Philistines, and they drew water from the well of the gate uh, of Bethlehem, and they carried it back up to David. Wow. Now, back on our topic here. How did those three become the three amongst the 30, amongst all the greatest of, the, of Israel? Number one, they showed up, but they didn't just show up. They were willing to step out and move up to the front lines. They went out to the front lines. They didn't just show up, but they, 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 they stepped up and went out to the front lines. Now, I know for many of y'all, especially those in the back, I'm not calling all y'all, some of that's the only seat you had when you walked in. I get that. There was a season where I didn't want anybody to know who I was at church. I would just come in anonymously. I'd show up, but I didn't want anybody to know. And during that season, people would tell me about it. Oh, I went to this church last week, and nobody said hi to me. I'd be like, really? What, what church is that? That's, that sounds like my kind of place, because I don't want anybody saying hi to me. I don't want somebody all up in my business. I don't want somebody greeting me. The last place I'm going to go is that whole new here thing. And no, I'm not going in and talking to anybody, even if you try to entice me there with a free shirt like this. Sorry, I'm not, still not doing it. I'd rather keep my anonymity than get me that shirt, okay? If you want to go get me that shirt for me on my behalf, fine, but I'm not doing it because I don't want anybody to know who I am. Some of y'all have been in that place for years. You show up, but you're not willing to step out and go to the front lines. And so what distinguished these three guys, it wasn't just that they showed up, but they stepped out and went to the front lines. Now, why is it that people don't go to the front lines or want to go to the front lines? Because sometimes when you go to the front lines, you don't come back. There's a risk involved. And that's why some of you, have, you, know, you remain literally in the shadows literally and, and, and figuratively, when, when it comes to coming to church, and you, you don't take that next step. Uh, like, like, for some of you, I'm glad you're here. Uh, for some of you, maybe it's your first time back from Christmas, and I'm really glad you figured out we do this more than just twice a year. For others of you who are here every week, I want to let you know, do you know we actually also do some other things during the week, too? Um, we actually meet here on Wednesday nights for Celebrate Recovery. If you ever heard Heaven Hangout, it's a great place to be, because the reality is, is most life change doesn't happen in this room. It happens in the context of a small group, a, a, a recovery group, or a table group. That's where most life change happens. And so what often happens is people will say, well, I showed up and God didn't do anything. I showed up and God didn't do anything. This story would not be this story if all they did was show up and hear David say, man, I really wish I could have some of that water. And you just picture them back in their mind like, dude, there's some bougie water out there, but you know, like there's coconut water you got to go down to a Whole Foods to get, and there's some really bougie stuff like the champagne of water. You got to go, you know, you go to some like fine stores, you know, like the Perrier and the Pellegrino. Uh, there's some water that, you know, comes from exotic places like Fiji or Voss. I had to look up Voss. Voss comes from the uninhibited forests of, northern, of southern Norway. Does it come with that accent too? I don't know. But amongst all the list of bougie waters that are hard to get to, the one that's behind the most formidable enemy of your day has got to be on the top of the list. And that's what David wants. 
If they just showed up and heard it and be like, ah, well, I hope somebody does it, nothing would have happened. Sometimes you hear about opportunities all the time, but you don't take them. You just let somebody else do it or hope somebody else will do it or pray that somebody else will do it. And then later on you watch and you see God do amazing things and you go, man, why didn't God do stuff like that for me? Inherent in there is the risk. Now, I love being a part of a church full of so many risk-taking people who are not willing to just sit by and just show up week after week after week and let somebody else do the work of the ministry, but people who just continually step out and step out and step out. And people ask me, how did, you know, they, and like, for instance, people ask me, like, how did, like, Mike, with his background, become a pastor on staff and leading Celebrate Recovery? I'll tell you how. Mike hired himself. I, I didn't, start Celebrate Recovery. He came to me and said, Steve, I really want to help people who have come through situations like I've come through, and I want to start a Celebrate Recovery. And it was sort of in the in sense of, I'm going to do this. If you want to share in the blessing of what God's going to do through me, then come on. If you don't, that's fine. I'll take, keep the blessing and share it somewhere else. That's literally how that whole thing went down. And here we are a couple years later, and hundreds of people have been blessed through that ministry, not just here in Virginia Beach, but now online outside of our area too. It's amazing to see that happen. Uh, Stephanie has been coordinating all of our mission efforts uh, here recently. Well, how did she become like your missions coordinator? Well, she started helping homeless people and giving them a, a dry, warm place to sleep at night. Not because we went out and said, hey, go do this. By the way, most of the missional stuff you see, like what we do in Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic and the Philippines, all these different places, hardly any of that ever came from anybody on staff leading our church and saying, here's something we should do. Almost every single one of them came from y'all. Because our missional philosophy from day one is this. I want to pastor a church full of people who aren't going to just show up every week, but people who are willing to step out and go to the front lines and take a risk and say, I, I see this need, I want to meet this need, and I don't care if the church is behind me or not, I'm going for it. And so like Irwin comes to me and he says, hey, I saw what you're doing in the Dominican, I saw what you're doing down in Nicaragua, I talked to my, my parents and some friends and family back home, and their situation is every bit as bad as that. Now at some places, the next line out of that person's mouth would be, how come you aren't doing anything in the Philippines? Do you not like us as much like everybody else? That's not his heart. He comes to me and he goes, I feel burdened for this. I'm going to do something. Does Essential want to be a part of that? And so I was like, all right, so what are you thinking? Like, you know, sometime this next year? He's like, no, Easter's next month. This is a true story. It's how it played out. And I'm sitting here looking at him like, yeah, I know it's this next month. I'm well aware. We've got a whole thing planned for it. Uh, we've been working on stuff now for you know, several months leading up to Easter. Um, you're talking about something on the other side of the world where you don't even have any, you know, have barely any contacts. Like you know Jojo, who knows Fred, who knows Mike, who sort of ran a church and a ministry one time long ago over in the hill country. There might be something. And you're going to go over there and do something? He goes, yep. Sure enough, he did. And we now have a ministry in Philippines. And it's just amazing and phenomenal to see what's going on there. But it all comes from something like that. But it's not just people who go do those things outside the church. It's people right here who are doing things right now, providing opportunity for you to be in here in this moment. Uh, one of them, I, I, I don't know everybody's story. I know a few of them. One of them I know is, is Dean. He's a good friend of mine. I'll tell you, when I, when I first meet Dean, Dean had showed up for church for a little while and decided he was going to step out and take a risk. And the step out, take a risk that he did was show up at a Bible study. Some of you are scared to death to show up at a Bible study, aren't you? I know. Scared to death to walk into some place where a bunch of people are going to be sharing, <laughs> talking about their lives, asking me about mine. Heck no. This guy's willing to show up, not just at a Bible study, but a Bible study that the pastor is leading, Bible study that the pastor is leading at his house. Now, why is that a risk? 
Well, he showed up in there. He just came off of a ship or somewhere. I don't know where he was at, somewhere in the Navy. And he's dropping F-bombs at a Bible study at the pastor's house. <laughs> now, a lot of people would say, I need to wait to clean up my mouth before I go do something like that, right? And it's funny because it just kind of came out in conversation. He's like, oh. And everybody's like, no, 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 we cuss all the time. That's all good. That's a whole explanation. All right. <laughs> the point is, instead of just, sh- instead of just showing up, and sitting here, he took that next step, that risk, and showed up at a Bible study where he didn't have the proper language or etiquette to belong. But he says, I don't care, I need to be there, and I was there. Well, here's what happened later on. Miss Debbie gets up and says, here's the thing, we've got people right now who've been serving since 7.30, 8 o'clock this morning. They came here that early, and they'll be here until long after you get in your car and you leave. And it's phenomenal what they serve. But you know who else also has to make a commitment de facto because of that? Their kids. Yeah, they're kids. So that means there's a bunch of kids who also get here around 8 o'clock and are here till noon. Now, what we used to do is they would go to kids' church twice. There's a problem with that because there's two kinds of kids. There's the good kids and there's not as good kids. Both of them are a problem the second service because the good kids, I know, I know, I know, David, David killed Goliath. I know, I know, it was a thing. I know, I know, hit him in the forehead. And the guy up there is trying to teach a lesson, and there's this kid who keeps on jumping all the answers. Why? Because they're the goody kid. They know all the answers to the last service. Then there's the bad kid who sits there like, I don't need to listen to this. This is dumb. I don't like this anyway. Okay. And he's not going to pay attention at all because he already heard it. And so Miss Debbie had this vision. She said, you know, what if we try to bless those kids so that they leave church having had a great experience and a good time, which will then in turn bless those who are serving. And so what if we, we offer something called bonus time where we make a game room where these kids can play video games and just have fun uh, while they're here, while their parents are serving. We could bless the parents through that, bless the kids through that. It'd be a great thing. But we need somebody who's willing to go play games with kids. And Dean was like, well, now I think maybe I could serve. I don't know. I just... <laughs> Let me get this straight. She'll think I'm serving Jesus and I'm going to be playing FIFA soccer with kids. I'll make that sacrifice. So sure enough, he goes in there. But if you had asked him, hey, can you come lead large church or large kids group and teach them a lesson about God in a fun and engaging way? First words out of his mouth would have been, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. And he says we rooked him into it. No, the Holy Spirit led him. And last service, that's what he was doing. What he was doing. He was, he was investing uh, into your children, the children who were here last service, investing them just like somebody's doing right now. And somebody else is in there playing with their kids during bonus time. And how does that happen? It's just because somebody doesn't just show up, but they step out and they're willing to take that risk. Um, John Roberts, another guy who goes to church here. Now, I've been praying for a move of God on several ships in this community and several commands because I see the depravity, I see the destruction that secular, dumb thinking, poor escapism is wreaking havoc on the families and the personal lives of people at several commands and ships in this community. And so I've just been praying, God, will you just move and do a move, you know, of only your spirit can do. And here's the thing I know, it can't be through me. I know it can't be through me. I'm not allowed on the ship. I'm not allowed at the command. Um, I have to get permission from one of you or escorted there to even do it. But it's going to happen through one of you. And it's going to happen through somebody like John Roberts who comes to me and says, I want that for my ship. And I I didn't tell him any of this vision. I've just been praying for it. He's coming to me and goes, hey, here's what I want to do. I'm going to be going out to sea. Um, he didn't wait for there to be a good chaplain. He just said, I'll be the chaplain. I said, can you do that? He goes, I don't know, but I'm going to chaplain the guys in my crew. And so using through you know, different apps and whatnot, he says, can you give me some research? I'm going to go do it. And he's done it. And he's been a chaplain to a ship, even though he doesn't have a little cross on his lapel. 
And you'll, many of y'all know the story of Father Bob. He's not a priest. He was like an intel guy or something. I didn't even know he was an intel guy. I get up at his retirement. I'm like, I had no idea you did intel. And all the intel guys laugh because they're like, yeah, you're not supposed to. That's kind of what we do. <laughs> um, I, I knew him as Father Bob. And I honestly thought maybe he was a chaplain or something. He didn't go out to be a priest. People just call him that because he had a heart to minister to people and far beyond what the Navy was asking him to do, he just went and did it. And it was really cool. This isn't just happening with adults, this is also happening with some of our youth. Isaac Loftus, you know, I asked Mike, I was like, is this happening on the youth level? He goes, yeah. Isaac's made it his mission that no kid's gonna come to youth group and not know somebody by the time they leave. So he's gonna reach out to anybody there. And that's just, you know, something he's done. And, you know, I, I, I watched my, you know, my own son, Jameson, said, I want all my friends to come to church. And so he invites him. Do you know the risk that it takes for a middle schooler with all the peer pressure and all the, to make that bold step? What are you risking at that point? You're risking, I mean, your reputation is all you have when you're in that age, right? You know, or um, uh, Brad's daughter, uh, yeah, Kylie. You know, she comes to Micah every week and says, I'm trying to tell my friends about Jesus. They had this question, how should I answer it? Those kids aren't to the point yet where they're willing to come with her, but she's like, all right, even if they won't come, I'll take Jesus to them. I mean, just amazing when you hear about these kind of stories. And was there a dry eye in the room when you heard about the story of Don and Katie? Remember a couple weeks ago I showed a video where she'd been praying for her dad? Is it not true that some of the biggest risks you'll take and the hardest battles you'll fight for Jesus are within your own family? And her dad was not coming to church, did not want to come to church, didn't want anything to do with church, but she was praying for him and she'd invite him, and every time she'd invite him, he'd get, she'd get a real nasty answer. But she kept inviting and then there's this you know, amazing emotional story where he's like, oh, I'm so glad she did. It's just changed my life and moved me down this path. And look it up online sometime, you know, the Don and Katie story. It's amazing emotional. How many of y'all had a moment where you watch that and go, that's what I want from my dad? Oh, that's what I want to see happen in my husband. As long as you're hoping for it and wishing for it, it's not going to happen. You got to show up, but not just show up, but you got to be able to take the risk. Katie didn't just pray that her dad would be here. She took the risk and invited him and invited him and invited him and put up with the harassment and put up with the nasty grams and put up with all of the negativity that was thrown her way. And she kept fighting that battle and fighting that battle and fighting that battle. She was going to win. And she did. And it was amazing to see that, that whole thing you know, play out. Now, anytime you go to the front lines, it's a dangerous place. There was no guarantee those guys were going to get there and were going to come back. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I could never do that. And as Hercules would look down and says, and that's why nobody will ever remember your name. That's why you don't see God doing great things through you. Because as long as you look at life and you say, okay, God, I want to do great things for you. So you, what happens for most of us, we sort of look at our own intellect, our own experience, our own education, and what our resources are, and say, okay, God, here's what I could do for you. And God looks at you and is like, all right, go for it, I don't care. How about it, man? Like, yeah, God, but I want to see you like move mountain, you know, you know, mountains in this in this area. He's like, you don't need a mountain mover, man. You got your own shovel. Go for it. Yeah, but I'm only like moving a little bit of dirt. I know, because that's all you want to move. When you want to move a mountain, you got to call me. We want miracles, but we don't want the context for a miracle. You follow me on this? We want a miracle, we don't want the context for a miracle. Uh, I always heard those stories, like these amazing moves of God, right? Uh, personal and professional. Like I, I had a friend of mine who was at a church quite bigger than ours, um, but they were doing a building project and they needed a crane. 
And so he's like, you know, they got to this point where they weren't going to get it. It was going to take like six, seven months. It was going to be way over budget. So he's like, you know, I'm just, he, he went to his congregation and said, I just got, we're at this place. Does anybody here have a crane? And sure enough, some guy raised and he goes, yeah, we just bought one for our company. You want it? Like, how does that happen, right? I'd heard that story. I remember thinking to myself, man, that's awesome, man. I would love to, you know, have some experience like that. Well, sure enough, when we were given this building, the foyer did not look like it does right now. It was this cramped space. You couldn't walk around. There was no foyer. It was just a very narrow hallway. And we tried to do one event in here before we, ever, before we ever moved into this building, and it was a disaster because we couldn't move in the building. And so I went to an architect and said, we got to have an open foyer. Some, we got to have some space inside in here. And he says, you can't do it. I was like, what do you mean you can't do it? He goes, well, it would take a steel beam. It would have to be this size, this length. And, you know, I don't know who you're going to get to do something like that. It's going to be pretty expensive. And so I heard this story, and I was thinking, like, this is like that crane story. Now, we were a church of only like 130, 140 people. So I'm like, why not? Let's give it a shot. I walked into church, and I said, all right, here's the deal. Here's the situation. As awesome as the building is, really excited about it. I was like, I don't know if it's going to work for us moving in there. Um, crazy ask. Does anybody here have opportunities or know anybody who can put up a steel beam? And I'm like looking around the room for like some big gruff construction worker dude, you know, somebody who drives like a, a you know, a big diesel truck, whatever kind of thing, whatever. Um, he would come walking around. Like, this little blonde girl comes up to me. <laughs> she goes, um, I've got a, a small women's business and uh, what we do is put up beams. I'm like, huh? <laughs> I found out later that Colleen sitting here, that was her first Sunday at church. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Right? I mean, just, and to think, now hold on for a second. You would think to yourself, I want that. It wouldn't have happened for me or for her if she hadn't what? Showed up. And it wouldn't have happened for her or for me if I hadn't taken that risk of looking like a complete idiot. I mean, it would be very, anybody here, you know, can do steel beam work? People look at me like, no, why are you asking us, pastor? Go get this thing done, man. That's what we pay you to do. You think one of us does a steel beam? No, we work on ships, man. We don't do that. But, but it takes those things to be able to see God do an amazing work. So you've got to show up. You've got to take a risk. You've got to do, also do what was unasked or unexpected. David wasn't asking anybody to go get him this water. They just did it. And if you're waiting for somebody to ask you, you may never see a move of God. All those people I just mentioned, not a single one of them did anybody ask them to go do anything. Not a single one of them did something that was expected of them. Every one of those stories was totally unexpected, was unasked, unprompted. They just showed up on their own. They were willing to step out and take a risk and do the unexpected. And that's where the move of God happened. Now, and it was such an amazing thing. You, I just got to speed down here to the end. They go out and they do this. Now, keep in mind, who are these guys? These are among the 30 greatest warriors in all the land. And what do they go do? What did they go do? They went to fetch water. The greatest warriors became water boys. Is that not what the story just said? I know you got your channel in Bobby Boucher. I was thinking about those videos there too, but you could have easily said, this is a task that's far beneath me. These are guys are highly trained, highly skilled. Send somebody else. How easy would it be for them to have, David wants some water? These guys, guys get together, all right, who can we send over there? Who, who can we put over there? Yeah, I'm not going over there. You, you know, we got those things. Up. 
there was no job beneath him. You know, there are people right now who are changing diapers, not because that's all they can do. Some of these people make six figures a year and are highly trained and highly skilled in what they do, but they're in there right now, you know, wiping the drool off your kid's face. I've said before, I'm not doing that. I didn't want to do it for my own kids. <laughs> I did. But there's people who are doing that. And it's not because they just, you know, love that kind of thing. They're showing up and they're stepping out and they're taking a risk. They're doing the unexpected. Think, what do you think happens when they tell somebody at work, yeah, so how was your Sunday? Oh, yeah, I was, uh, had this, you know, blowout in room two. <laughs> but I mopped it up for Jesus. But that's the context for God to do something great is when no job is beneath you. And so they go and they do this and they go and they get this water. I just pause, I just picture like, what were the Philistines thinking when this happens? Picture like the Philistines who were there that night having to go back to report to their commander. All right, so what happened? What happened, what happened last night? What happened? We get an invasion, is, is the attack starting? Like, no, no, the best we can tell is just three guys. All right, so, so three guys. So how long did it take for us to take them out? No, we didn't. They, they whooped our, we had a whole regiment over there, they just cut right through us and went straight on. Oh, were they going after munitions? Were they coming after me? Who were they going after? What was going on here? Oh, they were going for water. Oh, what'd they do to our water supply? They poisoned it? Nah, they just filled up their thermos and left. <laughs> it doesn't tell us what that did to the psyche or the psychological warfare that that must have been for the Philistines, right? To have three dudes show that they can just waltz right through your stronghold fortified line for what? Just to get a drink of water and leave? Like, what did that do to them? I don't know, but I can tell you what it did for David. When David's given the water, what's he say? He's like, I can't drink this. And he pours it out. And that's not a show of disrespect. It's a moment he's having with God. It's moved him and strengthened him spiritually because he's in this place, not because he's so confident of what God can do. He's in this place because he's gotten to this point where he's doubted that God can do what God said he's going to do. God, I know you said you were going to give us this land, but I'm looking at the army before us, and I'm in a strong, strong fortified place, and it'd be easy just to stay here, and I don't want to step out right now. I want to stay here in the safety. And he's got these three guys who step out, just the three of them, not the whole army. David's, David's afraid to take the whole army. These three guys go without the army, and they go in, they get them the water, and they bring it back, and they say, here you go. And there's this moment where David, where David is so encouraged by this, he's thinking, oh my gosh, God, how could I ever doubt you? You've taken three guys and just plowed right through the army, just like I did back with Goliath back in that day. Oh, how far I've fallen from the place of faith that I once had, where I'd walk out and say, you come at me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And now I'm watching these three guys do the very same kind of thing that put me in this place to begin with. God, I can't possibly accept this gift from them. This act of courage and faith that they've had that I don't have. I am not worthy because I don't have the kind of faith that I once had. And it's so moved him that he pours it out as an offering before God as if to say, God, bring me back to the place where I had that kind of strength, power, energy, and effort to once again be able to lead my people into the battle you put before me. Now, could they have seen that that's what was going to happen in David's life? I don't know. Maybe they just thought David was thirsty. I don't know. The point of it is this. Oftentimes what God is doing through you, you may have no idea what God's going to use in that situation to do through somebody else. I remember years ago, somebody called me up and they said, hey Steve, 
there was this girl I went to, went to youth group with, and I, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about her. Um, I invited her to youth group as one of the few people. I was really, I was not like, like Jameson. I would not just go invite all my friends to church. I was kind of embarrassed, afraid what they'd think of me, whatever. And so there was this one girl I did invite, not because I was dating her or nothing like that. I just happened to invite her. Um, and this person called me up, and she goes, yeah, she was sharing her testimony at church, and she mentioned you and the impact that your inv- invitation had on her. I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't even remember doing the invite. I mean, I, I sort of knew some of it. Point is, is this, you have no idea what happens when you not just show up, but you step out, you're willing to take the risk, go to the front line, don't wait to be asked, but you just do something and follow after God's heart. You have no idea the impact that's going to have on somebody else. When Colleen brought that beam in, she had no idea that 11 years later, I'd be talking to you all about it with an inspiring story of just stepping out and showing up. You couldn't know that. When that guy stood up with the crane, he had no idea that would inspire me to somehow take that risk someday. You have no idea what God is going to use in that moment to do something great through you. Because you think all you're doing is changing a diaper. And you hear an opportunity to serve, and you're like, yeah, okay, what, uh, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one last one. I'm looking at you guys online. Uh, if you attend online, one of our, one of our, our hosts, uh, online hosts, we have people who host the online experience because they kind of chat and talk whenever. So we have ministers, people minister online, so serving on ministers on time. There are some of those hosts that don't live in Virginia Beach. I'm talking to you, Justin Tully. I saw this you know, past week that he'd signed up to serve as a host. He lives in Austin, Texas. Uh, he actually helped us do some drywall work when we first moved into this building but hasn't lived here since. And he is serving at Essential in Texas. Now, I don't say that purposely to shame you for living in Virginia Beach and not serving at Essential. <laughs> but I could. Oh, let's face it, I sort of am. Just let that sink in. Just let that sink in. I'm halfway across the country and I'm serving. And he'd look at you guys and say, man, if only I could be there and experience it all firsthand like you guys get to. And you could continue that analogy all around the world. Show up. Step out. Don't wait to be asked. No job beneath you. That's the recipe for somebody that God can use to do amazing things. Would you me as we pray? Father, I thank you for your grace that can take people like us and do amazing things. Thank you that you can take somebody like David with all of his faults and all of his failures and elevate him to be someone that you would say is a man after my own heart. And you would do great things through him with all of his faults and all of his failures and moments like this where he's doubting you. Because sometimes I think when I have doubts or fears that it disqualifies me from being somebody you would use. So Father, I thank you, Lord, that you're not the God of of one chance or a second chance, but a God of another chance and another chance and another chance. So wherever we're at in this continuum, Father, whether the battle is just showing up or the battle is to step out or the battle is not to, not to wait to be asked or if the battle is simply to, to get over myself and realize that even a warrior sometimes needs to be a water boy and no job is beneath me. Father, may you move us in our hearts to take that next step. In Jesus' name, amen.